Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs okay. Spiritual Tools. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have the sort of the, the epic conclusion of, of the story of Yosef and his brothers. And there's, uh, of course, many, many things to to learn that that apply to to our life um and uh you know it's just a question of jumping in and and just uh picking picking a place to begin um so i'd like to i'd like to start with um i'd like to start with 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 something that i noticed uh, a few years back and i sort of challenged myself to find another level to this teaching that i'm about to share with you and thank God, I uh, uh, another level came came to me to to deepen this. So so let me let me start with that. So <clears throat> so we went over this this pasuk, this verse from the Torah. It's um like one of these very uh, very powerful psukim. It says Ele Todos Yaakov Yosef, which means these are the chronicles of Yaakov. Um, and then we expect uh, to list all of um, the generations of Yaakov, all of his children. And it says Yosef. So it says, Eli todos Yaakov Yosef. And then it just talks about Yosef. Doesn't talk about any of the other children. So it's this very surprising, like, concrete bond between Yaakov and Yosef. And in fact, you see Rebbe's with the name Yaakov Yosef. It's a very... If you're shopping for a good name for a for a boy, it's hard to beat Yaakov Yosef. That's a, that's a really good one. Um, so it's right there, right there in the Torah. Ele todos Yaakov Yosef, and of course Yaakov, everything uh, the the Torah tells us that everything that Yaakov knew, he gave over to Yosef. So we see that Yaakov and Yosef are really like this very strong um, uh, continuation of each other. And at a certain point, here's the teaching, at a certain point, I realized that Yaakov and Yosef were the same name. So that might sound odd. Yaakov and Yosef are different names. What are you talking about? It's the same name. So, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Yaakov is the letter Yud and then Akav, which means heel, the heel of your body, the bottom of your body. So the letter Yud is the Yud from the Yud Ke Vavke. The Yud is the, like the, the, spiritually speaking, Yud is the highest letter. You know, I once noticed something that was, I think, very, very interesting. Of all of the letters in the Olive Base, there's only one that floats above the line. And that's the letter Yud. Isn't that interesting? There's some letters that go below the line, but there's only one that floats above the line. And that's the letter Yud. So it's, just on a just a on a uh, pictorial um, uh, level, it's just very uh, cool that it's it would also be the first letter of God's holiest name. So so yeah, it's just like beyond. It's like floating beyond, 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 right? So you have the yud of the yud ke vav ke and the word heel, like the heel of your body, the bottom of your body. In other words, Yaakov means from the very very top 
to the very, very bottom. Yud, Akev. You see how that works? Now let's, I told you that Yosef has the same name as Yaakov. Well, how do you see that? Well, if you rearrange the last three letters of Yosef, it spells the word Sof, which means end, which means Yosef is Yud Sof, which means from the top, from the very top, all the way to the end. It's the same name as Yaakov. Okay, so I've been sort of reflecting on that teaching for a number of years. But the thing is, is that the Torah is infinitely deep. So anytime you come up with a good Torah and you like it, you got to go deeper. <laughs> so I thought to myself, you know, I want to share that with you guys today, but I got to go deeper. What's? I just showed you how the two names are the same, but they're not the same. One is Akev, one is Sof. In other words, they're talking about different types of ends. They're both connecting you from the very top to the very end, but they're different types of ends. One is the word Sof for Yosef, and the other is Akev for, for Yaakov. So I thought, but how are they different? How is each life, the life of Yaakov and the life of Yosef, teaching us a differentiation about being connected from the top all the way to the end? And then Baruch Hashem, I got, I got this thought. So, so, so now let's go a little bit deeper. So, you know, each one of the meals of Shabbos correlates with one of the Avos. So the Friday night meal is, is Avram Avinu. Avram was the first Jew. So, you know, during the week, it's, it's not, it's sort of secular, it's the week, but, but then comes Shabbos. Shabbos becomes holy. So that's, that's Avram Avinu. He was like everybody else, and then he became Jewish. That's the first meal of Shabbos. It's the weekday, and then all of a sudden it becomes Shabbos Kodesh. Then lunch is Yitzchak Avinu. So I heard Reb Shlomo say, you know, Yitzchak Avinu is, is famous for the fact that he never left the land of Israel. All the other Avos, they left Israel, but Yaakov wasn't allowed to leave Israel because he was put on the Akedah. He was made holy. He was offered as a sacrifice, even though he lived. And so he had this extra level of Kedusha, of holiness to him. So he was never able or permitted to leave the land of Israel. So, you know, in you have time, space, and soul. Those are the three fundamental components that reality can be boiled down into. That's, that's the Sefer Yetzirah. So in space, you have the land of Israel. But what is Israel in terms of time, right? And the answer is Shabbos. That's Reb Tzadok HaKon says that. So in other words, what, what, what Israel is in terms of space, it correlates with Shabbos in terms of time. So what does it mean that Yitzchak is lunch so, and, and that he never left the land of Israel? So listen to what Reb Shlomo said, the way he put it. So, so interesting. He said, Shabbos, Shabbos day, you wake up at Shabbos and then you take a nap and you wake up from your nap and it's still Shabbos. <laughs> you never leave Shabbos. That's Yitzchak. That's Yitzchak. Isn't that interesting? And then Yaakov, this is what we're getting to, Yaakov is the third meal of Shabbos. Now, it says in the Gomorrah something very, very interesting. If you want to build up your spiritual armor to protect you from all the upheaval, all the turmoil, from the end of days... Then eat Shalashudas. That's the third meal of Shabbos. 
Shalashudas, the Gemara says, is a divine protection against what's called Ikve Demeshiche, the upheaval of the ends of days. So Yaakov Avinu is representing the end of days, messianic times. Um, of course, Yaakov Avinu is the one who said, gather around, I'm going to tell you when the end of days are coming. Avram didn't do that. Yitzchak didn't do that. But that's why it correlates with Yaakov, because Yaakov had that vision. Even if he didn't communicate it to us, nonetheless, he had it, and, and that's what he represents. So, so Yaakov, Yud, Akev, that, that represents the heel. That's the word for the heel. It's also from the phrase, this is Aramaic, but Ikve de Mashiche. Do you hear the word Akev in Ikve? That means the heel of Mashiach, which means the end of days. That's how we would translate it into English. So I showed you how Yaakov and Yosef are really the same name. They both have the letter Yud representing the highest places in heaven, and they both take us to the end. So you see how Yaakov takes us to the end of days. Yaakov is that continuity that's going to get the Jewish people all the way through the Messianic time. But what about Yosef? Yosef also is Yud, if you rearrange the last three letters of his name. Sof also takes you to the end. But I want to say like this, not the end of days. You know what Yosef is giving us the power? That when we reach the end and we say we can't go on personally in our own lives. When we personally reach the end, when we hit a wall and we say we can't go on, then all of a sudden the power that's been bequeathed to us, our spiritual inheritance that Yosef has given to us, then that kicks in, and somehow, when we don't have any more strength left, we find some strength. You know, it's very, very interesting if you see the way both of them passed from this world. Yaakov said, make sure that you bury me at Moris Hamach Pelah. And, and, and Yosef swears to do it. And of course, all the, all the children, all the tribes, escort him to Moris Hamach Pelah, the cave of the patriarchs. Now remember what the Zohar says. The cave of the patriarchs is the entrance to the Garden of Eden. As such, it really represents the bridge between this world and the next world, or between the bridge between this world and Olam Abad, between the Messianic period. So again, it's very, very resonant, very appropriate that Yaakov Avinu, like as his mission, wants to be taken to that place which represents the bridging from this world to the next world, Mora Samach Pela, and he gets there, and he gets there. You know, and there's that incredible event that takes place beforehand that the Medrash records, which is that all of a sudden, Esav, we thought we're done with Esav, right? Yaakov's brother, but all of a sudden, Esav makes another appearance, and Esav blocks the way. The brothers are there, all the sons, rather, all the sons are there. And they're ready to bring Yaakov Avinu into Morasamach Pelah. And then all of a sudden, Esav is standing at the entrance to the cave saying, no way, that spot belongs to me. And, he's, and the, 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 the sons say, no, 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 it belongs to our father. You, you sold it. And he says, where's the contract? And 
Naphtali, who's like fast like a deer, right, starts running back toward Egypt in order to get the, the star, the, the contract. And there was another grandson. There's now one of the, the children of, of Dan. His name is Hushim. This is, the Medrash talks about this. Hushim is deaf. He, he can't hear. And he, all he knows is, is that there's this like, this, 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 this person standing in front, blocking his holy grandfather, Yaakov Avinu, from ber- being buried. And Hushim was like this mighty warrior. And he takes, he takes like a, a, a stick and he knocks off the head of Esav. And Esav's head rolls into Moris Hamach And that's the end of Esav. And so, it's so deep on so many different levels. But, you know, I think just on a very simple level, what's going to get rid of Esav, who of course represents the Yetzirah, right, the evil inclination? Like, sometimes you can't listen to it. Like, like it's, it's, there's one brother who's wanting to engage and and find the the paperwork, right? The legal paperwork. This is my land. Israel belongs to the Jews. We'll show you the paperwork. And then there's just Hushim, who's just like deaf to the arguments and just knocks his head off. So, you know, without getting political, I'm just telling you what the Medrash says. And you want to hear something really interesting? The Ben, the ben Yoyada, who's the Ben Yishchai, he says that if you take this name, Chushim, he's the one who knocks his head off, and you rearrange the letters, guess what it spells? Mashiach. Pretty interesting. So, so that is, that's Yaakov Avina. But what about Yosef? You see, there's our national level, and then there's the personal level. See, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time something so awesome. He asked the following question. You see, our tradition is that everyone who was um, uh, Jewish was at Mount Sinai. That's everyone who was alive at the time. But it's, but it's more than that. Everyone who was ever going to be Jewish was also at Mount Sinai at the giving of the Torah. And that means all Jews who hadn't been born yet and all people who were going to become Jews later on in their life. Every neshama that was ever going to become Jewish was present at Mount Sinai for the receiving of the Torah. So, so, so that's one level. Now it says in Gamor Nida that everyone, while they're in their mother's stomach, before they're born, an angel comes and teaches them the entire Torah. And of course, you're born and then an angel touches your mouth and, and you forget it all. But on a deep inside level, you know it, right? It's just you have to, this world, this life is really a journey of remembering the Torah, not not of learning it, of just remembering what it is that we knew. And and those of us who who learn Torah, you you understand it. Just it's not like learning math. 
It's not like learning geography or politics. It resonates inside your bones in a, in, in a way that nothing else does. And that's because it's in your bones. You're literally made out of it. Every single person has 613 parts that correlate with the 613 mitzvahs. That's why Torah is so powerful, because it's, you're literally made out of it. So, so here's Reb Shlomo's question. You ready? If you learn the entire Torah while you're inside your mother's belly before you are born, and you learn the entire Torah, why did Hashem have to make a miracle that you should also be able to receive it at Mount Sinai? Right? In other words, why do you have to hear it twice? If you were going to learn it anyway, in your mom's belly, why did you have to have your neshama summoned to Mount Sinai to hear it then? So now listen to this answer, an unbelievable answer. Reb Shlomo says that every single person, you know, you have really two aspects to your identity. One is your you. And the other aspect of your identity is you're a member of the nation of Israel. And so at Mount Sinai, you got what it is that you have to accomplish as a member of the Jewish people. That's, that's what came down. Your mission on a national level is what came down at Mount Sinai. But when you're inside your mother's belly... What you're getting is what you personally have to accomplish during your lifetime in this world. Do you hear? So you've got your national mission and your individual mission. And those are the two revelations of Torah that you receive. One when you are on Mount Sinai and one when you're inside your mother's womb. So Yaakov Avinu, remember Yaakov also has another name. It's Israel. And so that's the national mission. That's getting this world to the next world. That's combining heaven and earth. But you know, Yaakov wasn't the only one who had a final, a final wish before he, he passed from this world. His wish was to be buried at the connection between this world and the next, right? Moris Hamach the entrance to the Garden of Eden, the cave of the patriarchs. Yosef had a wish. And Yosef's wish goes back to what I was saying earlier. Because Yosef is all about giving us strength when personally we hit a wall and personally we don't have any strength to go on. You know what Yosef's wish was? He said, I want to remain with you during your entire enslavement during the Egyptian years. And my, my final wish is that you should remember to bring my bones out of Egypt and to take them with you for burial into Israel. Do you hear what Yosef is saying? I'm going to give you strength as long as you're slaves in Egypt. You're going to be able to get strength from what I was able to accomplish during my lifetime. And I want to stay with you. And I want to stay with you during these hardest times. Now, Reb Shlomo points out, just to build on this point, just in case you don't see it yet, something incredible about Yosef, which is that when Yosef was sold into slavery, he was the only Jew in exile. 
Can you imagine that? That there being such a thing? That there only being one Jew in, 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 in exile? And that was Yosef. And Reb Shlomo said that to this day, we get the strength to remain Jews in exile from Yosef at Tzaddik. And of course, exile doesn't just mean being outside of the land. Exile means when you're not connected to the deepest aspect of your own self or to your highest self. You see, when you're at the sof, when you're at the end, you have to remain connected to the yud, the yud above, right? And Yosef is showing us that, you know what, you can be stretched all the way to the self, all the way to the end, all the way to the last day of the Egyptian servitude, and still remain connected to that highest aspect of yourself. You know, one of the all-time best gematrias. You ready for this? Yosef is the same gematria as Tzion. Tzion, of course, is another name for Yerushalayim. That means that even when he was the only Jew in exile, he never lost his connection on the deepest level to Yerushalayim era Kodesh. I tell you an aside, I once, I don't know how this happened exactly, but I thought to myself, you know what would be a good name to name a kid? Yosef Tzion. And I wanted to name one of my children Yosef Tzion. And, and then years later, I found out that they were the same gematria. I didn't know it at the time. Not wild? But, but, but there you go. So Yosef is connecting us on a personal level. Yaakov is connecting us on a national level through our exile to the end of days. And Yosef is connecting us on a personal level that you can go through every single hardship in life experience the ultimate isolation, the ultimate alienation, the ultimate estrangement, and you can still remain connected to your highest self, and that you can give that strength to other people, right? Because he didn't just stop at remaining connected himself. He's the one who tells the brothers, don't worry, you didn't do it, God did it. And God had something very beautiful in mind. And don't blame yourselves. Right? He was able to take all of that strength that he was able to muster during those hardest times, and he was actually able to use it to reassure other people. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, I got to tell you just one of the most incredible stories. Um, I think it's in Holy Brother, you know. By the way, if you've never read Holy Brother somehow, then you got to, you got to, you got to go and, and read it. Um, so... So yeah, so so Reb Shlomo was getting a a pacemaker put in, and um, the the 
the nurses or the doctors, whatever it was, they, they came to his hospital bed. Um, and he wasn't in his bed, right? He had just had, you know, a form of heart surgery. And they didn't know where he went. And they found him going from sick bed to sick bed, doing bikrocholim, visiting the sick, trying to give them strength. And and the, 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 the hospital staff said to him, what are you doing? Like, what? Recuperate? And then when you recuperate, then you can go from bed to bed and you can, and you, can you can, you know, do this mitzvah, bikrocholim, visiting the sick. And Reb Shlomo said back to them, you don't understand. Right now, I'm able to visit the sick as another sick person. I'm giving them strength, one sick person to another sick person. He said, when I'm better, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be a healthy person trying to cheer up a sick person. He says, it's not the same. So can you imagine that, that, that Yosef, with everything that he was going through, was able to take that and use that energy to give them strength, right? Imagine how much they each personally were at their own personal ends. How could we have done what we did? And by the way, the Zohar says that the exile that we're in right now, to this day, is because the brothers sold Yosef. Michiros Yosef. It's right in the Zohar. So, just in case you're wondering, like, did it really have that degree of lasting effect on us and just who we are as a people? And the answer is it did. Sinas chinam, you know, that means hating people for no reason. And the sages say that this is this is basically what's keeping us in exile to this day. And, you know, when the first temple was destroyed, the first temple was destroyed, the sages tell us, because of three, you know, they call them in English anyway, cardinal sins. It's, it doesn't sound very Jewish, but anyway. It's shvichas damim, murder, gilia, gilias arayas, which is, you know, sexual immorality, and, um, and avodazor, idol worship. So these, these, the big three, as they say, right? But, but 70 years after the first Beis HaMikdash, the first Holy Temple was destroyed, we were returned back to the land and we, we rebuilt the second Beis HaMikdash. And now, 2,000 years after the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash, we're still in exile. So, wow. So that means whatever we did wrong, has to be worse than the big three. So they say, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Sinas chinam is worse than those big three. So you go, well, wait a second. How does that work exactly? And the best explanation that I heard was that those three, as bad as they are, um, and we have to give, our, give up our life rather than to commit them, so that really they, they, they are absolutely considered the worst. As bad as they are, they're considered external things, right? Like they're 
physical actions, really. But, but sinas chinam, that's an inner action. That's why we were able to repent after 70 years for those three, but, but hatred that gets into your bones, hatred for no reason, it's 2,000 years later, we're still trying to fix it. So, so yeah, we really have to sensitize ourselves to that. And there's so many ways, you know, I'll just throw out one thing just because I want to be as practical as possible, you know. There's, there's one way that really strikes me that I really feel like people do quite a bit, and they do it with the best intentions. And in my mind, it's 100% sinus cleanum. Can you imagine how treacherous the Yetzirah is that, that it can get us to do the worst Avera with the best intentions? So what am I talking about? I think everyone can relate to this situation. You have a friend, and someone hurts your friend, right? And your friend says, you know, you're my friend, and this person just hurt me, so it's only right that you should hate this person as well. And you think, I'm such a good friend. You're right. I'm going to hate them even though they did nothing to me. And look what you've done. You really just have been so righteously extended our exile. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You're such a mitzvah girl, such a mitzvah boy, (laughs) keeping us deeper in the darkness by being such a good friend. There's got to be a better way, right? So next time you're in that situation, I hope no one's in that situation, but next time someone appeals to you out of the goodness of your heart to hate another person who hasn't harmed you. See if instead you can't try to make peace between the two of them. How about that? (laughs) How about that? And of course, you've got to be very, you've got to use a lot of wisdom when you make peace between people. It's not so simple. You don't just, at the time of their pain and at the time of their emotional suffering, which they legitimately might be going through, I'm not saying that the person who hurt your friend is a good person. I mean, they, they may have done something truly cruel. So, so the answer is not just to rush to defend that other person. That's not the answer. You have to validate your friend's emotional distress. You have to be a friend to your friend. You have to do that, first and foremost. But then in time, you have to use some wisdom. And you have to try to figure out if there's a way that you can be productive, as opposed to just hopping on the hate bandwagon. Okay. So, I want to continue this discussion of Yehuda and and Yosef, right? Staying in it to the end giving other people strength, right? So, so there's a, a chapter in this story. Yehuda comes to, to Yosef and he defends his father. 
Now I'll tell you something which is was new to me. I learned it from Rob Frummer, and I love this because it's just like, uh, for me, it was a new answer to a question that everyone's been asking their entire lives, who's been learning this story. Okay, the question is, why didn't Yosef reveal himself to the brothers sooner? Every single person has this question. Every single person, and we all at this point in our lives have come up with or learned a lot of good answers, okay? Probably the, the classic answer is that, that Yosef wanted the brothers to do tshuva, and he wanted to put them in the exact same situation as um, they were in with, with him, as they are in with Binyamin, and this time they do everything they can to save Binyamin's life, and they do tshuva. They fix what they needed to fix. Okay, that, that answer most people, I think, are familiar with. But I want to give uh, a new answer. And the reason why I love this answer is because it's not mystical at all, and it's just so straightforward. You ready for this? According to Rav Frimmer, and he's basing it on a medrash, Yosef did not reveal himself to his brothers because he was afraid they were going to kill him. How about that? Isn't that an awesome answer? <laughs> an awesome answer, right? Now, Rav Frimmer now asks the question you're probably thinking, which is, what do you mean they were going to kill him? They're, they were tzaddikim. If they're tzaddikim, they're not going to kill their brother, especially after everything that they just went through. But now Rav Frimmer gives another answer which is just can shake you to your bones. And now listen to this. Listen very carefully. He says that the nature of Sinas Chinam, which they had been guilty of in terms of selling Yosef to begin with, right? The nature of Sinas Chinam, causeless hatred, is so treacherous that your own righteousness will not protect you from its effects. I'm going to say that again. You see, normally speaking, we feel as though mitzvahs are a shield. And if you have a lot of mitzvahs, your mitzvahs will protect you in certain instances. Right? Like I'll give you a classic example, a wonderful example, um, which is that <clears throat> you have in the next world the fires of Gehenna, okay? And it says that the Eish HaTorah, right? If you want to know where that phrase Eish HaTorah comes from, the fire of Torah will counteract the fires of Gehenna. So, so the Torah that you learn, the Eish Torah, the Torah that you learn during your lifetime will shield you and surround you and protect you from the fires of Gehenna. Isn't interesting? There is one example of how your mitzvahs are a shield for you in your lifetime. And there are many other examples, just in a, just an everyday way, okay? However, Rav Firmer is telling us that, a, that hatred is so insidious that your mitzvahs will not protect you from the effects 
of your own hatred. Hatred is so insidious that your mitzvahs will not protect you from the effects of your own hatred. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And scary. And scary. It shows you, you know, I was privileged to be by Rib Shlomo over a period of 18 years in my life. Of course, he was always traveling all around the world. It wasn't 18 years continuously, but over a period of 18 years. And, um, and if you ask me what was the number one avoda, the number one sort of like heavenly service that, that Reb Shlomo gave over to me, you know, that I learned from him, I would say that a person has to cleanse all of the anger out of their heart. You know, having said that, I probably could come up with another 10 or 15 things. But if there's one thing, I would say that would be the one thing. A person has to cleanse cleanse their heart of anger. And, and here you see it. You see it in this teaching so vividly. So Yosef reveals himself before his brothers. And by the way, why did he pick the moment that he picked in order to do it? There were a lot of other emotional moments. Remember the brothers bowed down to Yosef? That was the fulfillment of the dream. Um, so there were... There were other opportunities you could learn out that Yosef could have revealed himself sooner. But Rav Firmer points out something else very interesting, which is that, that if you look at the, the words that Yehuda says to, to Yosef, Yehuda says over and over again, I cannot bring my fathers down, head down to the grave in misery. Like if I don't bring Benjamin back to my father, I will kill my father, and I can't allow my father to suffer. So another aspect that Yosef wanted the brothers to do tshuva on was the fact that they made their father suffer for all of those years. They had to do tshuva on that. And the fact that at the end they were all willing to become slaves rather than to hurt their father any more then was completely necessary was tshuva for hurting their father as much as they did during those years. So that's another reason why why Yosef revealed himself to his brothers at that moment. But now I want to tell you something heartbreaking. And this is a part of this story of Yosef and his brothers that just, I, I, I really don't really hear it get discussed much. And it's not in this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha, you know, Yosef reveals himself to his brothers, and it really feels like, okay, and the whole story is wrapped up, you know. Yaakov comes down to Egypt, and it's like, this is the end of the story, right? Wrong. There's a little... P.S. to this story, which you can cry a thousand tears over it, which comes at the end of next week's Parsha. 
Okay, so it's like really kind of hidden, this little final chapter to the story. Yaakov Avinu is nifter. He leaves this world, right? Of course, we say Yaakov lo mes, Yaakov never dies. It says that in the Talmud. But, you know, in this world way of thinking, he leaves his body anyway. And... Um, and the brothers come to Yosef with a letter that every single commentary says was a forgery. And this letter was forged by the brothers in the name of their father, in the name of Yaakov. And it's, it's, it's written to Yosef. Again, the brothers made it up. It wasn't really from Yaakov. And, and it says to the it says that Yaakov is telling Yosef, please forgive your brothers. Right, they can become slaves to you, but don't take vengeance on them. And this is happening. 17 years later, after, after Yosef has revealed himself to his brothers. Now, let's, let's try to figure out what's going on here. Do you remember when, when Yaakov gets the birth, gets the blessing? Esav says, I'm going to wait for my father to die, and then I'm going to murder Yaakov. I'm just waiting for my father to die. And then I'm going to get vengeance and I'm going to kill Yaakov. Does that sound sort of familiar? As soon as Yaakov Avinu dies, all of a sudden the brothers say to Yosef, don't take revenge on us. Does it sound like maybe the brothers we're thinking that Yosef couldn't possibly have forgiven us for what we did. And he's just been waiting for Yaakov Avinu to die in order to get his vengeance. Do you hear that? Do you hear that message? Do you understand what? Do you, do you understand the implication of that? It means that the brothers never believed Yaakov, that it means the brothers never believed that Yosef really forgave them. Is that heartbreaking? The brothers never fully believed that Yosef forgave them. But what do we know? We know that Yosef 100% forgave them. So then what does that mean? And then this is really the devastating part. I mean, that's devastating enough, right? But this is really the devastating part. That means that the brothers never forgave themselves. Because Yosef certainly forgave them. So if Yosef forgave them, why were they walking around for 17 years thinking that he's just waiting for our father to die to get vengeance on us? 
because they never forgave themselves. Because they didn't forgive themselves, they didn't have the vessels to accept Yosef's forgiveness. They didn't have the vessels within themselves to accept Yosef's forgiveness because they didn't forgive themselves. You know why so many people leave Yom Kippur unchanged? Because they haven't forgiven themselves, so they haven't created vessels within themselves to receive God's forgiveness. We're human beings. We're human beings. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. God created us that way. We just have to try our best. And when we make a mistake, we have to try our best to fix whatever we need to fix. You know, my, my father, in another context, but I, I always love it, he said that, that Rockefeller, or maybe it was John Paul Getty, they were both, you know, arguably the richest person in the world during their lifetimes, that, that he hired someone to run all of his businesses. My father told me this story several times. I, he loved this story, and, 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 and I, I, I love it too. Anyway, the first day this person showed up, right? You've just been hired to run the richest person, <laughs> to run the businesses of the richest person in the entire world, right? No pressure, no pressure, right? And he said to this person, whose name I forget, he said to him, first day of the job, you ready? He said, you can make as many mistakes as you want. Just don't make the same ones twice. <laughs> it's good, right? <laughs> how, do you, and how do you not make the same ones twice? By learning from your mistakes. That's how. And, and, and every, you know... Every mistake can be turned into a victory. Every single mistake in your life can be turned into a victory. How? You learn a lesson from it. If you learn a lesson from it, then you have snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, and now you're heading into the rest of your life armed with that. You're not going to make the same mistake twice. It's a victory. Right? So now... With that in mind, let's, let's, let's revisit what I think is one of the most powerful things in all of Torah, in all of Judaism, and really, I think, distinguishes Judaism from every other religion in, in you know, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but, you know, I think in the, in the most beautiful way, which is... You know, you have the concept of Mashiach bin Yosef and Mashiach bin David. And the two progenitors of, of the, the, these qualities, of this sort of the ultimate human being, right, which is going to usher us into the next era, is Yosef, who we've been talking about, right? And Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who peels and saves his brother, saves his father's life. Yehuda is the one who makes all sorts of mistakes and somehow somehow comes out on top, right? 
He's of the brothers. He gets the blessing to be the king of Israel. And so if I were to ask you, and, and Rib Shlomo used to tell this Torah over all the time, if I were to ask you this question, who do you think the ultimate Mashiach, the ultimate savior, defend, de, descends from? Would it be Yosef Atzadik, the one who doesn't do anything wrong, the perfect one? Or the one who makes mistakes and comes back and fixes them? Who is the ultimate redeemer? And the answer is Yehuda, the one who mistakes and who makes mistakes and comes back and fixes them. It's unbelievable that that's what the Torah teaches. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that this is that this is truth. In other words, perfection doesn't come from never making a mistake. The ultimate perfection from a human standpoint, human standpoint, from a Torah standpoint, comes from getting back up on your feet and rededicating yourself. That's what the redemption comes from, getting back up on your feet after you make a mistake and rededicating yourself. It couldn't be more clear. And of course, King David, which is the Messianic line, descends from Yehuda. And the Megali Amuko says something very unbelievable. He says, if you look at the letters of the name Yehuda, it's, it's the Yudke Vavke, it's God's holiest name, and the letter Dalit. The letter Dalit stands for David HaMelech. And so there you see the whole messianic line, right? Right within the name of Yehuda. And so I want to tell you something, and really this deserves a lot more time, but we're going to wrap it up right now. But I, I want to tell you just how central forgiveness is, how important it is and how much it's absolutely at the epicenter of Jewish thought and our notion of the design and the, and the architecture of existence. How central it is. So, you see, here's what people think, all right? People think that, imagine a graph. I'm going about my life, so it's more or less, it's a little bit up and down, a little up and down. It's probably, I get into my various ruts. So now it's going to, the line is on my XY axis. It's going to plateau for a while, right? That's kind of my year. And then in terms of charting the holiness of the year, all of a sudden, zoom, it spikes up. That's Yom Kippur. That's the holiest day of the year. This is how most people relate to Yom Kippur. You know? You got your line, ups and downs, and then zoom, it spikes up. That's the holiest day of the year. That's Yom Kippur. That's the XY axis way of charting the holiness of Yom Kippur. But you know something? It's so much deeper than that. I'm going to give you a completely different model, a completely different visualization to understand the reality of the world. It's concentric circles. You have a circle, and then around that another circle, and around that another circle, and around that another circle, 
and around that another circle. And that's your life and that's this world. And do you know what's in the center most circle? Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is radiating out from that central, from that central circle into all the other circles of this world and of your days and of your life. Forgiveness is this hot coal that's warming and enlivening all of existence and all of the days of your life. That's the power of Yom Kippur. That's what's going on. I'm going to give you a few supports so that you understand the truth of this. The very first day of creation. Remember, human beings are created on the sixth day of creation. The very first day of creation, it says in the Torah, Yom Echad. The Medrash says, Yom Echad. What is that one day? One day. That's translated as one day. What is that one day of the year that's different from every other day? And the Medrash answers, it's Yom Kippur. In other words, God was already bringing Yom Kippur into the world from the very first day of creation, or said a different way, before God even created us, he was already forgiving us for anything we'd ever do wrong. Do you see how Yom Echad, Yom Kippur, the first day of creation, is at the epicenter of creation itself? It's not just another day of the year. It's at the center, radiating throughout all these concentric circles. I'll give you another example. You know, when the Klein Gadol, what was the apex, the, the, just the, the height, the height of the Yom Kippur davening? It was when the Klein Gadol would go in with the incense mixture into the Holy of Holies, and you know where he would put it? He would put it on the foundation stone in the Holy of Holies. The Medrash teaches the Big Bang Theory. Before we had the Big Bang Theory, thousands of years before there was the Big Bang Theory, we Jews knew how God created the world. The Medrash teaches that God took one tiny physical point of matter and radiated that point outward in every direction, and he created the physical universe. It's Mamish the Big Bang. It's exactly the Big Bang. But do you want to hear something even more intense? You know what that one little speck of matter was? It was the foundation stone of the Holy of Holies, where the Kain Gadol would come on the holiest day of the year and put the incense for forgiveness. Do you understand? It's not just in terms of days of the year that the first day of all of existence is Yom Kippur. On a physical level, the point of forgiveness, where the high priest would bring the incense and put it on the foundation stone, that is what the entire universe is made out of. And so it's at the center of absolutely everything and it radiates into everything. And unless you're allowing that aspect of forgiveness to be at the core of your own being, 
you're not tying yourself into the reality of existence. You don't have to be overly generous or idealistic to allow yourself to do it. You just have to be truthful. Because you know something? On a very deep level, if you don't forgive yourself, do you understand that that's an act of arrogance? If God is forgiving you, who are you not to forgive yourself? Because secretly you actually think you're perfect? It's the height of arrogance. It's an arrogance, Mamish. Arrogance. 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 You forgive yourself because God is forgiving you. You forgive yourself because you're creating a vessel in order to bring more peace and more healing and less hatred into the world. And that's how we'll go about fixing everything. Okay. So how do we define forgiveness? I think it's... Um, I would like to suggest that it's by being able to start again. I, I think that that's a nice, very practical... Um, because, you know, I think a lot of people confuse the idea with forgiveness with it doesn't hurt anymore. But I think that you can forgive and it can still hurt. But, but if you're willing to start again, practically, then you're, you've put yourself back into the game and you've put the other person back into the game and and there's things can go on and 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 now th there's the capacity that things can improve and and yeah whatever whatever separation whatever death sort of happened now it's now it's spring again basically so so i i think that's what it is the the ability and the willingness to go on. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.